You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Loop Podcast. My name is Zane Aryampour. I'm one of the core hosts here at The Loop, and I'm a surgical resident at the University of Colorado. I'm so excited for this episode, so please join us as we discuss gender-affirming surgery in the context of the plastic surgery and service exam. I'm also joined by some awesome co-hosts today, and I will let them introduce themselves. We have two guest hosts, including Annika Kim, a medical student from the University of Southern California, as well as Caitlin Belza, a medical student from the University of California, San Diego. Thank you both so much for facilitating this episode today. Could you please tell us a little bit more about yourselves? Thanks, Zane. My name is Annika, and a little bit about myself. Most recently, I went to undergrad at Stanford. And currently, I'm a first-year medical student at Keck School of Medicine at USC. My interests within plastic surgery so far include burn reconstruction and medical education. But as I just started medical school, I am very much open to other specialties within the field and excited for everything it has to offer. Hey, everyone. My name is Caitlin. I was born and raised in Bend, Oregon. I'm currently between my third and fourth year of medical school at UC San Diego, and I'm actually taking a gap year to pursue a master's in clinical research. So far, my interests in plastic surgery include craniofacial surgery and longitudinal outcomes related to quality of life in the plastic surgery population. Awesome. Thank you both so much. So what are the resources that we use for today's episode? We used Graben Smith's Plastic Surgery 8th Edition, Janice's Essentials of Plastic Surgery 2nd Edition, the WPATH Standards of Care Version 8, and the relevant concepts from 2018 through 2022 in service exams, which were found using a keyword search in all the topic areas. Excellent. So let's get started discussing today's topic, which is gender-affirming surgery, which is one of my personal favorites. Uh, which we've categorized broadly into transmasculine surgery as well as transfeminine surgery. For each topic, we'll discuss preoperative considerations, surgical techniques, postoperative care, complications, and other information for the in-service exam. Sounds great. Let's start with some background information. Zane, could you tell us a little about the path to becoming a surgeon who performs gender-affirming care? Absolutely. So here in the United States in the last uh, decade or so, the practice of gender-affirming care is becoming much more standardized. There are only a small handful of gender-affirming surgery fellowships, all of which are non-accredited. In the past, and even sometimes now, surgeons would visit gender-affirming care centers to observe these procedures and then bring the skill set back to their home institutions. It's important to note that almost all plastic surgeons are equipped to perform top surgery in addition to most of the aesthetic procedures like body contouring and basic facial surgery like rhinoplasty. However, specialized training is likely necessary for more advanced facial surgery and especially genital surgery. That sounds good. Thanks for giving us the overview. Next, let's talk about standards of care for gender-affirming surgery. Could you describe what resources a surgeon has for guidance regarding transgender health and how to determine when surgery is indicated? The World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, is an international professional association with guidelines for gender-expansive patients. WPATH defines evidence-based standard of care recommendations to provide clinical guidance for health professionals. Interestingly to note, a lot of the recent work has been based on WPATH version 7, but recently version 8 of WPATH has come out. It's been published, and it contains a lot of changes from previous iterations. 
Princeton it has less stringent requirements for prerequisites to surgery, and it now includes guidance for non-binary patients. That being said, something that's important to consider is that these new WPATH guidelines may not align with the requirements for insurance companies. So when we're identifying candidates and progressing through surgical planning, we have to consider factors related to insurance coverage as well. Now that we've covered standards of care for gender-affirming surgery, according to WPATH, let's get started. Like Zane said, this podcast will largely be divided into the two categories of gender-affirming surgeries, transfeminine, which refers to male to female, and transmasculine, which refers to female to male. I will first start with questions related to transfeminine surgeries, and then Caitlin will take over and end the podcast with transmasculine surgeries. So let's get started with transfeminine and what surgeries are included. Zane, could you please walk us through that? Absolutely. So major categories in transfeminine surgery include facial feminization, voice pitch alteration, which is largely ENT, breast augmentation, and genital surgery. Facial feminization surgeries can be further divided according to the area of the face addressed, including the forehead, mid-face, mandibles, or lower face, as well as the laryngeal prominence. Got it. Let's begin with forehead recontouring and go down the face from there. What are the primary differences between male and female foreheads in terms of their skeletal structures and what does the feminizing procedure involve? Absolutely. Male patients develop enlarged frontal sinus compared to female patients during puberty. Male patients also tend to have thicker lateral supraorbital rims and more elevated radix. Facial feminization surgery can address each of these aspects and can include hairline reduction, brow lift for the soft tissue, frontal sinus setback, and reduction of the supraorbital rim, all of which can be used uh, through pretragal incisions as access points. These procedures can also help correct frontal bossing, which is a key skeletal feature we hope to address with the forehead surgery. And what are the preoperative evaluations involved there? So for forehead recontouring, a lateral cephalograph or maxillofacial CT scan is obtained in order to determine the thickness of the frontal bone over the frontal sinus and to essentially determine the degree of supraorbital reduction needed. If the frontal bone is sufficiently thick and the setback needed is modest, burring of the supraorbital ridges may be sufficient to correct frontal bossing. If the frontal bone is thin and or if the setback required is significant, the surgeon may have to perform a frontal sinus recession, which involves removing the anterior table of the frontal sinus performing osteotomies on the excised segment of the bone for replacement in a more feminine configuration. And what about the mid-face and the lower face? What surgeries and pre-op evaluations are involved there? Yeah, so mid-face and lower face are a little bit different. Contouring depends heavily on what the patient wants. Mid-face feminization surgeries can include malar implants or fat grafting to define the cheekbones, as well as rhinoplasty, which involves usual analysis of nasal airflow. Feminization of the mandibular contour can include narrowing genioplasty to reduce the prominence of the chin and sometimes reduction of the total mandibular height. If mandibular contouring or height reduction is planned, it's important to identify the mental frame and and inferior alveolar nerve position prior to surgery uh, to prevent damage to those structures. I see. You, You mentioned earlier that Adam's apple is addressed in facial feminization. Could you walk us through what gives rise to this biological difference between males and females? Of course. So the thyroid cartilage consists of paired lamina that meet at the thyroid angle. The cartilage is more prominent in men because of a more acute angle between the paired lamina. In males, the thyroid angle is closer to 90 degrees, whereas it's about 120 degrees in females. The laryngeal prominence of the thyroid cartilage, or what we know colloquially as the Adam's apple, uh, not only forms a distinctly masculine feature, but also has implications for longer vocal cords and lower pitched voice in males. 
Transgender women who underwent puberty without hormone blockade will often exhibit enlarged thyroid cartilage and will require chondrolaryngoplasty because once enlarged, the thyroid cartilage does not respond to gender-affirming hormone therapy. And what does chondrolaryngoplasty involve? So chondrolaryngoplasty is a surgical reduction of the thyroid cartilage, and it is what is often incorrectly referred to as a tracheal shave. The procedure is performed through a submental incision in order to leave a scar that is not visible on frontal view. A direct approach can scar deeper structures and lead to depressed scar that moves with swallowing or talking. Dissection exposes the superficial surface of the thyroid cartilage, and the external surface of the thyroid cartilage is shaved down until a desired contours achieved. I'm guessing that the major complication of the surgery is injury to the vocal cords. What are the structures at risk for damage? You're exactly right. That's why direct visualization with an endoscope is so important during the procedure to identify the location of the anterior commissure of the vocal cords, because injury to the structure will lower the pitch of the patient's voice, which is counterintuitive what we're trying to do uh, in this type of procedure. Got it. And now I would like to move on to discussing breast surgery for trans feminine patients. What are some of the pre-op considerations prior to the procedure? So preoperatively, patients over 40 years of age on feminizing hormone therapy should have a screening mammogram and be assessed for breast cancer risk. Um, location of the nipples on the chest wall should also be noted during a preoperative physical as implants are placed uh, with the nipple centered. I see. And what are the different options for breast surgery? So for transfeminine breast augmentation, fat grafting is an option for those wanting a modest augmentation. However, most patients opt for an alloplastic device like silicone or saline. For these implants, they can be placed subpectorally or subglantrally. Choice between the two depends on what the patient wants because both have their pros and cons. For instance, subpectoral implants result in a more natural slope superiorly, but are limited medially, especially if the patient has a wide sternum, as is the case for transfeminine patients. Subglandular implants carry a higher risk of capsular contracture, but provide a greater definition of the breast mount. So it really depends on patient goals and what the surgeon the patient decide on. Got it. And now I'd like to discuss transfeminine bottom surgery. What are some of the important preoperative considerations prior to this surgery? Absolutely. So preoperative requirements for transfeminine genital surgery, uh, they're outlined in the World Professional Association guidelines and include two letters of readiness from independent mental health professionals that the patient has been on estrogen therapy and has been living in their congruent female gender role for at least one year prior to surgery. Those are the two main things that patients need prior to transfeminine genital surgery. And these types of surgeries are sterilizing, so it's important to discuss the option of sperm banking for those who want to preserve their fertility. And let's say a 16-year-old birth-assigned male wishes to undergo this genital surgery. The patient has two letters of referrals, 12 months of hormone therapy, and has been living fully in the role of their desired gender for at least one year, as you said. Are there additional requirements specific for these minor patients? Absolutely. So um, the question Sam says is a 16-year-old patient. So based on WPATH guidelines, because the patient is under the age of 18, guardian consent is required along with the patient assent as long as the patient has the capacity to make a fully informed decision and provide the consent. Thank you for the clarification. And now let's discuss the different methods of gender affirming vaginoplasty. I understand that there are different techniques for the surgery. Could you please expand on what they are? Absolutely. So overarchingly, um, the options for vaginoplasty 
uh, include vaginoplasty with canal and vaginoplasty without canal. We'll focus uh, initially on vaginoplasty with canal. So there are two main techniques to create a neovagina with a canal, and they are based on what material is used to reconstruct the canal. The most commonly practiced is called penile inversion vaginoplasty, which typically uses penoscrotal flaps to line the neovagina. There's also intestinal vaginoplasty, which uses a segment of the sigmoid colon instead, um, but this type of procedure is typically reserved for cases in which uh, primary penile inversion with penile flaps uh, has failed. And can patients who undergo the surgery ultimately able to have penetrative intercourse regardless of penile inversion vaginoplasty or the intestinal vaginoplasty since both create the canal? Absolutely. So both techniques allow for patients to have penetrative intercourse following the surgery because they both create a canal. Um, in the case of penile inversion vaginoplasty, the space for the vagina is dissected between the uh, urethra and the rectum within the rectoprostatic fascia, also known as de Novilliers fascia, until the peritoneal reflection, allowing for an adequate depth compatible with penetrative intercourse. Uh, the penile shaft skin is then used to line the neovagina. And I think you briefly mentioned that the intestinal vaginoplasty is used for rescue operation. Um, what other circumstances would surgeons offer intestinal vaginoplasty than the penile inversion technique? Absolutely. That's a really good question. So intestinal vaginoplasty is done when sufficient penile skin is not available, or like you said, as a rescue operation in cases of vaginal stenosis or other types of complications. Uh, most recently, intestinal vaginoplasty is becoming more frequent as younger patients undergo hormonal blockade, which inevitably limits the amount of available penile skin. Uh, and because intestinal vaginoplasty uses sigmoid colon to line the vagina, it doesn't rely on penis size for vaginal depth. That makes a lot of sense, especially with younger patients starting hormonal blockade early in the anticipa anticipation of gender transition. What is the standard post-operative care and the common risks associated with this procedure? Absolutely. So as we talk about post-op care, a lot of this stuff is really important to talk about with your patients preoperatively so they have expectations for what uh, is to come after surgery. So one of the most important aspects of post-op care in transfeminine general surgery is dilating the neovagina for a very long time, usually for life. Kind of foregoing dilation will eventually lead to contraction and patients will lose their depth. Because the prostate is now removed, patients will need prostate cancer screening beginning at the age of 50. The most common complications of transfeminine vaginoplasty include urethral stenosis uh, and or divergent urinary stream in up to 55% of patients, as well as vaginal stenosis in up to 27% of patients. Pelvic floor spasm and rectovaginal fistula may occur in a small population of patients, um, which is probably one of the worst complications of the surgery, uh, and revisionary surgery is common for this surgery. In fact, it's reported about 20% of patients undergo revision at some point after their initial surgeries. And what does the revisionary surgery entail? Uh, so revisionary surgery, uh, like we talked about before, kind of focuses on intestinal vaginoplasty as possible rescue, as well as dilations uh, under anesthesia for vaginal stenosis. So kind of something else to discuss preoperatively um, is the option for zero, zero depth valve vaginoplasty or zero depth valvoplasty. 
This isn't just an option as a revision surgery. Some patients might opt for this instead of the penile inversion on intestinal vaginoplasty. Unlike the two surgeries I discussed, zero-depth vulvoplasty does not create a vaginal canal. Instead, penile and scrotal tissues are used to create a vulva and urethra, giving patients the desired external appearance. Um, but it's important to note that zero-depth essentially means there's no canal, so there's no really prospect for penetrative intercourse. Got it. And one last question for this segment of the episode before I hand it over to Caitlin. Why would some patients choose zero-depth vulvoplasty or vaginoplasty? Yeah, that's a really good question. So some of the common reasons uh, for opting for no canal over having a canal, it's a less invasive surgery. There's less associated complications, uh, as well as patient-specific factors, including, you know, um, not having the desire for penetrative intercourse or, you know, not wanting to maintain lifelong dilation. And of course, there are patients for whom full depth vaginoplasty is really out of the questions, maybe because of their past medical or surgical history. Thanks so much for that interesting first segment. I'd like to begin the transmasculine surgery segment of the episode discussing the indications for breast surgery. What are the preoperative considerations prior to this procedure? Absolutely, Caitlin. So one of the important considerations during the preoperative period for transmasculine patients is breast health. Ideally, you know, patients would have gone through their primary care physicians having you know, age-appropriate cancer screenings. But unfortunately, as the research has shown for a lot of our transgender patients, um, this does not occur as frequently as we would like. So a thorough past medical and family history are crucial to determine the patient's risk of breast cancer. This information impacts surgical planning because top surgery essentially leaves some breast tissue behind, while risk-reducing mastectomies involve a different surgical procedure, which removes all of the breast tissue. Additionally, according to the WPATH guidelines for chest surgery uh, in transmasculine adults, one letter of readiness is recommended, but no duration of testosterone therapy is required. That being said, if a patient is taking testosterone therapy, there's no need to discontinue the hormone therapy prior to surgery because evidence, recent evidence, suggests that it is not related to wound healing, bleeding, or DVT um, in cisgender men. What if we have a patient who is less than 18 years old and wishes to undergo gender-affirming surgery? Do the same WPATH guidelines apply? Good question. So while there are specific considerations for gender incongruence in children and adolescents, according to WPATH, the patient may provide assent for surgery upon the consensus agreement of the care team, psychologist, and the guardian. Treatment is really a collaborative shared decision-making process, and gender-affirming surgery in these patients is suggested to be carried out after ample time of living in the desired gender role and at least one year of hormonal therapy. That's so nice to hear that there's been so much thought put into delivering the best care for adolescents. Let's continue our transmasculine discussion with the primary goals of top surgery. Absolutely. So ideally, the surgery will produce an aesthetically appealing, uh, appearing male chest. This is achieved by removing the breast parenchyma, obliterating the inframammary fold, reducing the areolar size, and positioning the nipple areolar complex into the appropriate positions, which is more lateral in males compared to females. Additionally, we think about incisions and how they will heal. Typically, a linear incision is preferred because a curvilinear incision appears more feminine. Now, I understand that there are multiple surgical techniques that can be used for top surgery. What factors are considered to determine the optimal technique for your patient? Absolutely. So overarching theme in this is essentially the, the, the chest size with which patients present with. There are a few variables to think about, including the degree of breast tissue, the volume of parenchyma resected, the amount of skin redundancy, and the grade of ptosis. 
For instance, periareolar breast reduction demonstrates excellent results when limited to patients with smaller breasts, minimal ptosis, and a smaller skin envelope. Whereas wise pattern and circumareolar reduction mammoplasties can be used in patients with modest skin excess and allowing for resizing of the nipple areolar complex. Um, most commonly, subcutaneous mastectomy with free nipple grafts is the most appropriate procedure for patients with high-grade ptosis, significant breast volume, and those with long-term use of a binder. And what are some of the limitations to these various techniques? So there are several things to think about. Although periareolar mastectomy results in some skin recoil, which reduces a nipple areolar complex diameter, it does not allow for nipple repositioning. Additionally, with circumareolar mastectomies, there's minimal ability to relocate the nipple into the more lateral masculine position. Okay, got it. Could you please describe some of the key aspects of postoperative care? Absolutely. So typically we leave drains, especially with a dual incision with free nipple grafts. We'll leave drains. Those drains are typically removed within one to two weeks after. Um, some surgeons prefer to bolster nipples in place. And if there are bolsters, they'll be removed at one week typically. Patients will wear a compression vest for about three weeks, if not longer, with modified activity restrictions. Also, aggressive scar massage and silicone cheating at night can help to prevent hypertrophic scars. Uh, and importantly, in the same way we monitor for postoperative hematomas in our cancer mastectomy population, it's important to be aware of these post-op uh, in PACU and the week post-op. It is important to educate the patient on signs and symptoms of expanding hematomas. Are revision surgeries common in this population? So studies suggest that revision surgery in transmasculine top surgery has an incidence of about 40%, and most commonly patients undergo revision for dog ears or nipple-related concerns. This is an important topic of discussion during the informed consent process before surgery because revisions are typically delayed until about 6 to 12 months after the initial procedure. Gotcha, that makes sense. I think we should probably move on to discussing our next topic, which is genital transmasculine surgery. What are the WPATH guidelines for genital transmasculine procedures? So interestingly, um, with the recent changes in WPATH, the guidelines have recently changed. So previously, two formal referral letters from qualified healthcare professionals were required prior to genital surgical treatment or evaluation. However, the latest version of WPATH states that trans and gender diverse patients seeking uh, treatments, including hormones, genital, chest, facial, and other gender affirming surgeries require only a single written opinion from a healthcare professional. Um, those are the new guidelines, but just keep in mind that um, insurance companies have not really been up to date with the changes in WPATH, so some insurances may require more letters or a more stringent process. Those sound like important considerations to remember. Moving on to the topic of genital surgery, specifically phalloplasty, can you describe the overarching goals of this procedure? Absolutely. So there are a few main desired outcomes for this type of procedure. First is the creation of an aesthetically pleasing neophallus, ideally with preserved tactile and erogenous sensation. Additionally, we hope to give the patient the ability to micturate while standing, um, which is an important uh, aspect to discuss with patients beforehand, whether that's absolutely stringent to their goals. And finally, the ability to perform penetrative sexual intercourse. Okay, that makes sense. How about surgical planning prior to phalloplasty procedures? Could you tell us a little about this process? Absolutely. So um, across many care centers, there's a decent amount of variability in techniques. Uh, reconstruction of male external genitalia is staged beginning with um, removal of the internal reproductive organs, and that includes hysterectomy, oophorectomy, and vaginectomy, which are typically performed uh, several months prior to phalloplasty. 
Additionally, many centers will perform urethral lengthening or formal metoidioplasty to establish the parts fixed to urethra prior to the formal phalloplasty. Coronoplasty and the initiation of scrotal reconstruction can be performed at the time of formal phalloplasty and reconstruction of the penile urethra. Scrotoplasty and insertion of testicular prosthesis are done several months after phalloplasty. And finally, if the patient desires penile prosthesis for erectile function, this is typically done greater than one year after the initial phalloplasty. I see. So despite the variability in staging, are there certain approaches for performing a phalloplasty and urethral reconstruction that are used most commonly? Absolutely. So there's a lot of research going into, you know, what type of flap is best for this type of reconstruction. In today's day and age, formal phalloplasty is most commonly performed with a radial forearm free flap utilizing a tube within a tube design for reconstruction of the penile urethra. This technique can be performed as a single stage one flap phalloplasty or a single stage phalloplasty with two flaps. The single flap phalloplasty requires a very large cutaneous donor site. Therefore, the primary goal of the phalloplasty with two flaps is to minimize the donor defect and improve vascularity at the periphery of the skin flap paddles. Some centers also use an anterior lateral thigh flap. However, the thickness of the flap makes the tube within a tube structure difficult to accomplish without construction an unduly large phallus. ALT phalloplasty is accompanied by less ideal aesthetic and sensory outcomes as there's only one nerve typically used for coaptation in ALT, which would be the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, as opposed to two in the radial forearm. However, there's less donor site morbidity in ALT and the donor site is more easily hidden. There's a third option uh, for phalloplasty that's not as commonly used and that would be latissimus. Uh, it's a much less utilized option as it is also bulky and it also usually provides only a single nerve for potential coaptation, which should be the thoracodorsal. Radial forearm is the gold standard, which will be the focus of the rest of our phalloplasty discussion with other options available as backup if needed. Also, patient body habitus and personal preference may also inform the most appropriate donor site. Interesting. So prior to a phalloplasty utilizing a radial forearm free flap, what are the important considerations? So harvesting of the radial forearm flap can potentially threaten the vascular supply of the hand. Uh, especially in patients with an incomplete arch. So an Allen's test must be performed to assess perfusion of the hand prior to harvesting the free flap. And you mentioned that one of the primary goals for phalloplasty is preservation of erogenous and tactile sensation. Which nerves enable this to happen? So erogenous sensation is provided by the innervated clitoris at the base of the neophallus. Regarding tactile sensation, this is provided through medial and lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve coaptations to the clitoral and ilioinguinal nerves. This approach is actually quite successful in preserving erogenous and orgasmic sensibility in almost 100% of patients. Okay, that's a good thing to remember. And what is the most common complication to watch out for after a phalloplasty surgery? So the most common complications after phalloplasty are unfortunately urologic with an incidence of approximately 40%. This typically involves the formation of urethral fistulas and strictures. The most common locations for fistulas and strictures to develop is at the anastomosis of the fixed urethra and the phallic urethra. Fistula are often accompanied by strictures. About half of these can be managed non-operatively with suprapubic catheter placement and endoscopic fistula dilation. 
For urethral strictures that have failed successful treatment with endoscopic dilation, urethroplasty is the definitive operative management. Operative repair of urethrocutaneous fistulas should be managed with excision of the fistula tract, closure in multiple layers, and ideally covers with a local flap, either labial fat pad, gracilis, or other options to decrease recurrence. I see. So what if you have a patient who decides that a phalloplasty is not the best surgical approach to meet their goals? What other options do they have? So these patients might consider a metoidioplasty, which is a step below a phalloplasty. It utilizes the clitoromegaly that accompanies transmasculine testosterone therapy to construct a phallus, as well as to allow for standing urination, with the added benefit of being a one-stage operation typically, as well as preserved sensation. Typically, testosterone therapy results in clitoromegaly, which allows for conversion of the clitoris into a phallus that measures about four to eight centimeters in length. While this link generally does not allow for penetrative intercourse, the procedure itself is less complex and negates the risk of donor site morbidity compared to apalloplasty. Therefore, it may also be a reasonable alternative option. Um, Metoidioplasty is usually accompanied by removal of internal reproductive organs. Generally, the procedure involves clitoral lengthening with clitoral degloving, focusing on release of suspensory ligaments, as well as urethroplasty and scrotoplasty using labia majora. While metoidioplasty can achieve ideal clitoral lengthening for some patients, for others it may not and can serve as a bridge for future phalloplasty. All right. Well, that's all we have for the transmasculine section. To everyone tuning in to this episode, I hope you enjoyed learning about gender-affirming surgeries with us. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you both so much for coordinating this episode today. And to our listeners, if you would like to hear more episodes for the in-service review, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast sites such as Apple or Spotify and make sure to follow us on Instagram to stay in the loop.